I'm excited. Just this whole next week is just going to be a lot of fun. We are just gearing up for uh, the resurrection. Today is actually known as Palm Sunday. Some of you that are familiar with the church calendar will know it's Palm Sunday. So I wore my palm shirt, palm tree shirt. Like, this is like the modern dad tie. Like, I'm rocking the modern dad tie with the palm tree shirt just going all out for Palm Sunday. So, uh, and next week is, is Easter weekend, resurrection weekend, man. We're just excited to celebrate. We do a couple of things that, that uh, or one thing specifically that's unique to our body and our fellowship that, that God really inspired a, a few years back, and we've been doing it ever since, and, and it's just been amazing. So I want you to know all about it. You can grab one of these um, flyers, that what this is, these little flyers on the way out, and even grab a handful of these to just spread the word, um, and maybe just write somebody's name right here and just drop it on there, tag them on Facebook, and say, hey, I want you to come sit with me for Easter. we got two services next Sunday. But kind of the unique thing that we do is actually on Saturday night, we do something called the Resurrection Nocturne, or the Easter Nocturne. And uh, we always pray for good weather because we do it outside, on the outside patio. And it's just a, a night of worship, as opposed to a traditional Good Friday service. We do it on Saturday night, the eve of Easter. And it's just kind of deeply symbolic of the time in which believers were waiting for Jesus to resurrect. And when they would mourn now as Christians, we, we don't have to mourn in that time period, we actually, we can worship right through it in this resurrection we get to celebrate year-round. And so that's next Saturday night, right out here on the back deck. If, if rain happens, we'll just pull it inside, and it's all good, and it's going to be amazing. It's just a night of worship, not of music. At 6 p.m., we'll do an Easter egg hunt out in the field. We're going to have a ton of Easter egg hunt, uh, Easter eggs out there, so uh, bring the kids, bring the family, the neighbors out for that, and then to hang around for the nocturne right afterwards. Next Sunday, we'll be doing two services at 9, 15, and 11. So we'd just love for you to be here for that. Invite somebody, uh, and it's going to be fun. Our second service will be more crowded, and so if you're able to move into the early service and kind of get into family stuff after that, that would be amazing. And so we love you guys. We're just sensitive on, on that uh, on big days particularly, okay? So we love you, excited about what's going to come for the next week. And, and I'm excited about today. I think God's going to do some... Um, significant things in our lives this morning, in, in the next few minutes. I just feel like God, there's a word that God's given that's going to resonate uh, deeply, and I think just even in that time, God was just stirring hearts as we were singing these songs uh, about finding our identity in God. I, I think God's just going to do some deeper things in us this morning. I want to turn to Mark chapter 14, and we're going to look at this um, passage in, in, in Mark in which Jesus is found in the garden. He's found in the garden of Gethsemane. And it starts with really the Mount of Olives. And so I want to tell you a little bit about the Mount of Olives, um, which if you were with us a few weeks ago when we were talking about the parable of the talents, it was really Jesus' last big sermon. We preached out of Matthew on that. Jesus was on the Mount of Olives. That's known as like the Olivet Discourse. It's his last final sermon from the Mount of Olives. And uh, so the Mount of Olives is significant for, like, historically, um, and, and I think it's going to resonate with us today. It goes all the way back to King David. He was, like, pursued by his own son, Absalom. You guys remember how Saul pursued David? Some of you will remember that. Uh, he, he pursued him, and then his own son, Absalom, when he was uh, wanting to be king, he pursued David, and, and, and there he was, David, again, fleeing for his life, and he, he pursued him to this Mount Olive. Uh, another time, there's King Solomon later, he would, uh, who is David's offspring, he would build idols on Mount Olive, and King Josiah would later come down and tear those idols down. There's just a lot of significant stuff. Zechariah, 
uh, prophesied in Zechariah 9.9 that Jesus would come riding in on a donkey, blowing everybody's expectations about what they thought the Messiah would come like, you know, as this valiant, you know, triumphant political, you know, military leader. That's their expectations. And here comes the Messiah, the anointed one, riding on a donkey. How many in here, your expectations of what you thought God was going to be like (laughs) got blown up when you really got to know who God was and who Jesus was. And so I think God's going to do some of that today. He's going to blow up our expectations of what we thought he was going to be something different. But Zechariah prophesied this, you know, centuries before. What's so interesting about this is that he prophesied, and Jesus would enter into Jerusalem on a donkey from Mount Olive. And Zechariah would actually be buried centuries before on Mount Olive. I, wonder, I just wonder and just imagine that Zechariah, I mean, he had no idea that Jesus would probably ride over his grave in fulfillment of the prophecy from centuries before. That's just mind-blowing to think about, and he would have never been able to wildly imagine that. It's also, the Mount of Olives is also where Jesus would ascend to the Father, Acts chapter 1, verse 9. That's where he ascended to the Father, so there's that kind of cool thing going on there as well with this Mount of Olives. And so the Mount of Olives is what it is. It's a mount full of olive trees. Pretty exciting. And the Garden of Gethsemane just sits at the bottom of the hill, just sits at the bottom of the hill. And so the normal use for this garden was to press the olives and to prepare the olives and the ol- to get olive oil. And so I want to talk to you this morning about being pressed but not crushed. So it comes from a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, but I really want to spend our time here in Mark chapter 14 looking at this one little simple, extremely deep prayer that Jesus prays to the Father in just the depth of his distress and trouble and sorrow prior to going to be crucified. And so Mark 14, really like right before this, the the plot to arrest and murder Jesus has started. Jesus has instituted the the Lord's Supper and and washed his disciples' feet. And then right after that, he takes them, and that's where we're going to pick up. Verse 32 through 36, I think is where we're going to be this morning. If you can clear out that background for me, and that'll be a little bit easier to read. Uh, They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. I want to spend the rest of our time just unpacking this prayer, this deeply intimate, deeply broken and heavy prayer of Jesus. And I want to start with this Abba, Father, because many of us, we find ourselves in a garden now. We find ourselves in the night of betrayal or of brokenness, of deep sorrow in some way. We find ourselves in this place, and Jesus is really not only just saying a lot about his character and and what his sacrifice, but I think he's saying to the life that he's calling us to live. I think the first thing that we can receive from this text is to never lose sight of who God is in the garden. Don't lose sight of who God is in the garden. Like, 
I, I think some of these parts of this prayer would actually say, man, was Jesus doubting that you know, God was going to resurrect him? Was he doubting in this? Um, but I think this first phrase, Abba, Father, says he knew who he was crying out to. I think what's interesting is that when Jesus taught the disciples to pray in Matthew 5 and 6, um, it started with our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And here, it's way more intimate. You see, the distress and the sorrow will, will, will require us and it'll draw us to be more intimate. And so being in the garden, being in the valley, a, a night of darkness in your life, a season of darkness in your life, it'll, it'll cause you to move from it being our Father to being my Father. The, the Greeks use this language, this Abba, <clears throat> like I would use Daddy. <clears throat> and the truth of the matter is that the majority in the room got a lot of daddy baggage. And, and God, through his perfection, wants to just heal so much within us that our identity would not be found by anything from our upbringing or, or the things we've been through, but our identity would be driven and would come directly from God the Father. And, and don't forget who he is. Never forget who he is in the garden. He's good. He's good. He's, he's Abba Father. He's Abba Father. Secondly, he says, everything is possible for you. It wasn't just the goodness of God. It was that he was great, too. Every, sometimes we can begin to doubt, is God ever going to get me out of this? Is this it? Is the garden it? Like, have you forsaken me? Even Jesus said, why have you forsaken me, Father? And I think there's this depth of humanity that we see in Jesus, and we often acknowledge and regularly acknowledge the divinity of Jesus, but we also must recognize and fully acknowledge his full humanity. And I think there are these moments in Scripture in which it's revealed in this one-line prayer, this one sentence, this one verse reveals both the depth and complexity of his earthly sorrow, but also the depth and the perfection of his divinity. And that even though his flesh was weak, his, and his spirit remained willing and perfect to the very end. And so we see something in this. But he, he, he didn't change who God was. He knew exactly who God was, even in the midst of that deep distress and the deep in the sorrow. Because as we just prayed, our eyes and our feelings will lie to us. They lie to us all the time. You've been lied to this morning by your feelings, probably this weekend, probably this week. You've been lied to by your feelings. It'll do everything we can, and I just, want, I just want you to remember that when you're walking through a valley and maybe when you're walking through what feels like the shadow of death, just know you're walking through it. You're, you're walking through it, and it's but, a, it's but a shadow of death. It's not death itself, because in seven days what we will celebrate is that death has been defeated, and that, that he, Jesus Christ conquered the death, hell, and the grave. And that he's alive. And, and so fix your eyes on Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and see that he is good. And he is always great no matter what you're going through. No matter what outside influences, no matter what kind of baggage you bring to the table, he is good and he is great. Never forget that when you're in the midst of the garden. Uh, it's so interesting to me, this whole oil thing. There's this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter Four, verse 7 through 10, and, and, and I won't go all the way to it. You can turn to it or mark it down and read it later. But I want to read it to you for just a moment 
Paul's talking to the church in Corinth, and 2 Corinthians 3 through 5 is some of my just favorite passages of Scripture anywhere. It's just deeply gospel-focused and powerful for us as ministers in his gospel to, to walk that out. He says this, we have this treasure in jars of clay. Paul's talking to the body of Christ. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that his or that this all-surpassing power, everything's possible. This all-surpassing power is not from us, but it's from God. And so it just reflects so much here. And he goes on to tell the church who is being persecuted deeply. And maybe you're not being persecuted from the outside, but you have a tormentor of your soul that seeks to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And so if you don't feel hard-pressed on the outside, I bet you're feeling hard-pressed on the inside. And this is what Paul says. And his actual phraseology is not in the sense that... that um, uh, that Jesus is what's happening there is the pressing of olive oils, but I think the, the, uh, the symmetry there, the contrasting there is quite interesting. He says this, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. This phrase is wild. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus. Like, do what? We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed. We won't know about the light unless we've experienced the dark. But the good news is that we won't lose sight of who he is in the darkness. One of the interesting uses, there was a lot of uses for oil in that culture. One of the uses um, was to light a lamp. They would fill this with oil uh, and it, was, it would be used to illuminate homes. It was used in the temple as well. And uh, so where Jesus found himself bowing to pray, his hands probably a little bit soaked in oil. You know how oil just kind of stays on you? As he bows to the ground and is praying, he falls to the, he's probably touching some olives that have been pressed in there and there's just oil on his hands and he's kind of soaked as he bows to pray. And the common use that people would harvest that to use is to light a lamp in their home. And Jesus, remember he said that in, in John, he said, I'm the light of the world. He said, I'm the light of the world. Light of the world, you step down into darkness. Right? He stepped into darkness. There's something about us carrying around the, the brokenness of our lives. There's something that, that God wants to shine through. But we have to get the first part, that he's the light of the world. But in Jesus' first sermon, he made it very clear that the light that he was would be inside of us. Right? This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. Right? That light is within us. And Jesus, who said he's the light of the world, he also looked to people, human as we are, and said, you are the light of the world. And you are the light of the world. And so it's just beautiful to me that in this text of understanding God's identity, that it transforms our identity and that his light shines in us for all the world to see. And God wants to do something in and through us, but I just want to encourage you, don't lose sight of who he is. Because that's where it all comes from. That's where our identity is defined from. He wants to do something in our life so that when we are pressed, we will not be crushed. When we are persecuted, we will know we will not be abandoned. When we are struck down, we will not be destroyed. There's a faith and a confidence that comes through what Jesus endured for us. 
and took to the cross. Secondly, I think this speaks to us deeply on one of the more complex parts of this sermon, and it's this, never hesitate to sacrifice for the sake of others. Never hesitate to sacrifice for the sake of others. Jesus says, he kind of sets them up like a, like a son would do. Like, I feel like my kid's done this before. Hey, Daddy, everything's possible for you, so can we go get ice cream? You know, uh, you know like how a kid will just set you up and they'll kind of butter you up? Um, he kind of sets God up. He's not really doing that. Um, but it was just funny to me. Um, he says, if it's possible, like that, this, that this cup would pass for me. The cup is deeply symbolic, has been used, it was used in the Psalms, it was used in Jeremiah, it was used in Isaiah. Historically, it was symbolic of the wrath and judgment of God. This cup is something that Jesus has been talking about a lot, symbolically, in a, a new way, and he told his, his uh, disciples that they would have to endure this cup. They would have to in, endure this bitter cup of sacrifice, that we would have to They'd have to be willing to give up their lives. And the cup that Jesus endured, the cup that Jesus drank, is different from the one that we drink. Because he endured the bitter cup of God's wrath and judgment was satisfied in Jesus. And I think sometimes when we hear wrath and judgment, like that's complex for us, it really births from the holiness of God, his perfection, and that he is the only one righteous and that we in our brokenness since the dawn of, of mankind in the fall, that we experience this brokenness and fallen short, and the only way for us to access the Father is through Christ. And we were not the solution to our problem. God was the, the solution, and he gave of himself. He was the only apt sacrifice, fully human and fully divine. And so there's something deep that God wants to speak to us about this, because our, while our cup is different, we still have a cup. Well, what is that cup? What is the cup that we bear that we might pray that it would, it would pass from us? Because Jesus knew that it wasn't going to pass from us. But I think we hear the depth of the humanity in the, f- in the flesh there. I, I often describe it like this. If you put, everybody put uh, one hand over one of your eyes. Go ahead and do it with me. Yep, you can do it. Interactive sermon today. Yep, cool. Now, now flip it up, wiggle that eye around, and then, uh, and then do the other one. Right? What happens when we do that? We lose our peripherals, right? We, we lose some of our depth perception, probably with each eye. Like, a, you know, a doctor could probably tell me more deeply what's going on here. But, but there's something to that, that we lose our perception. With Jesus being fully divine and fully human, it was as if an eye was, you know, he, he was seen fully human here and fully divine here, but his depth perception, his peripherals were not messed up. He saw fully in humanity and experienced fully the depth and brokenness of that, but he also walked fully in the divine. So what's the cup that we bear? Is it sacrifice in in obedience? Is it inconvenient obedience? Is it frustration or stress or pain that we've experienced that nobody else gets? And for each of us individually, we have our own carrying around the death of Jesus in our bodies. And while our bodies are wasting away day by day, our spirits can be inner renewed. And so there is something to the depth of this that we can identify with Christ. But I just want you to know, like, never 
never uh, hesitate to sacrifice for the, for the sake of others because in the same breath that he said that I want it to pass, he said, yet not my will, your will be done. I, I knew uh, one time we were, this past weekend we were at, um, we were camping and we were talking about travels and, and, and terrible flights and, and um, one of the guys brought up Australia and, and they had I'd been there and they asked about what the travel was like there and I told them it's brutal. Like it was, for, for me, when we lived in Georgia, it was a total of 35 hours between in the air and driving to where we were going to minister to the Aboriginal people who only 50, 60 years ago were not considered human. Like, they, legally, they were not considered human. They were hunted as wild game 60 years ago. These people deeply distressed, troubled. And so we, we were going there eight hours from our closest international airport to get to. And there uh, in the South Australia, I met this guy named Adrian. And Adrian was about six foot eight, 285 pounds, and um, he was fast as lightning. Like he could, he could whoop everybody in this room at the same time. He, he, like BC, like before Christ, he was an underground fighter in Romania. He's a Romanian dude. Adrian has about four graduate level degrees. He's got like two or three master's degrees and a couple of doctorate degrees. So not only can he destroy us physically, he's like a mind wizard and he's, you know, so smart. I mean, he could be a professor or be a professional fighter in the MMA. And so that's basically what he was. He was an MMA fighter, and he came to know Christ and did some different things along the way. But there I found him, and I heard his story. And this man that has incredible intelligence, and he could also whip some people. He lived in Adelaide, which was eight hours from where we were with his wife and family. And he would travel every other weekend, eight hours and I'm not talking about eight hours of light travel, you know, just straight shot. Very long roads. Four hours of it is pretty normal, you know, driving. The next four hours are all on bumpy dirt roads for four hours. They said at one point they popped three tires on that track. How, you, how, you can't even prepare for that. That's how rough this road is. And he would do this every other weekend, travel eight hours. And I was just blown away. I'm like, so what do, you, what do you do when you come? And he said, most of the time what I do is I, I go and I help somebody fix their car. And I'll go and I'll help them put up a shed outside. There's only about 100 people in this community, just to give you a, a reference there. 100 people in this community. And, um, and I just began to route. He was just daily discipling people and serving people and sacrificing his nights and his weekends and time with his family to drive eight hours to be in this small community called Nepabana. I said, man, that's a lot. Like, isn't there somebody like closer, some churches? And he said, I'm not, I'm not going to wait for somebody else when I see the need. Because someone, we, I think we all do this. We think somebody else will come, somebody else will do it. But what if they don't? Like, what if we are that person that's supposed to be the light in that dark community where suicide rates are out of this world and, and, and where alcohol and, and, and substance abuse like, is out of this world. Like, what if it is me? And so I just want to tell you, never sacrifice or never hesitate to sacrifice for the sake of others. The second use that Jesus would, would bow down here and pray that was common for the people um, was to cook food, Right? In ancient Mediterranean society, olive oil is the butter of the Mediterranean society, right? And everything's better with butter. And if you don't 
think that's true, go home and cook some corn this afternoon and don't put any butter or oil in there and just let me know how you like it. And then try it again with oil or butter and it's a lot better. Um, And they would just take this and they'd open this up and they'd just pour it all over it and just make sure that there was plenty of, of oil to go around. So where Jesus found himself bowing, one of the common and sacred uses, they not only would use this in their homes for food, but in the preparation um, for non-burned sacrifices, um, they, they would use this in the, in the tabernacle as well. So it was a sacred use um, at that time. And so this began to speak to me, and God just began to reveal that our sacrifice is, is bread for somebody, is substance for someone. And just as Jesus would bow on his knees and people had been there and worked and had been hard, hard at pressing this oil out, um, so Jesus was pressed and, and crushed and broken for us that we might taste and see that the Lord is good. And, and I just wonder and I just envision, I wonder who in your family or in Bartram Park or in St. John's County or at your school might taste and see that the Lord is good because you were willing to sacrifice. Even though it was inconvenient, you were willing to walk that out and go where others might not go. And and I'll just tell you one day, we'll see that it was worth it. That it was worth every minute. It was worth every penny. It was worth of every day showing up early Every day showing it, staying late, it was worth every single sacrifice. We'll see it when we see him face to face ourselves, and we'll see it in people that will tell us it's because of you driving eight hours on your weekend off to come help me put on my shed that I saw the grace of God flowing through you. I saw that light shining through you. And I want always, I want this house, and I believe it is built. It's not built on the talents of a few but the sacrifices of many. And so I applaud you and thank you for how you sacrifice because I believe this house is being built in that fashion. Last thing I think that this text speaks to us is to never forsake obedience for the sake of comfort. Never forsake obedience for the sake of comfort. Jesus said, it's not my will though, but yours be done. We all have a will We all have preferences, we have desires, and the truth of the matter is that they always usually lead us to our comfort and to our own, um, you know, preferences. And and what the New Testament really draws us to and speaks to us to is to, to daily sacrifice the flesh, like to daily crucify the flesh. That's not about what I want, ever. It's it's about what he wants. And there's great freedom in that. And so for, for those of you who are like, oh, man, that sounds terrible. No, actually, there's more freedom in that than there is doing it yourself. Because what you don't realize is you're actually in bondage more than you realize. Amen. You're in bondage to the flesh. And what Paul's telling us is like, be, be enslaved to Christ. Because when we're enslaved to Christ, there's actually freedom in there, not bondage. And so it's a completely different way of looking at, at this. Being a servant of Christ calls us to sacrifice and to obey when it's comfortable and when it's extremely painful. And it, but it's hard for us when we realize that the process isn't always pretty. 
the process is often painful. And here, I think there's a hard truth and a hard lesson that sometimes obedience will actually take you to a hard place. Obedience will actually take some crucifying of the flesh. We, we just want to jump the process, right? Don't we? Come on. We want the meal. We just don't have to cook it. We just don't have to go get the groceries. Don't have to look at the recipe. We're sick of eating fried food, but, you know, we want to skip the process, and the process is where God's doing his work. Because I'm guessing for many of you in the room, you've read about Jesus, you've heard he was a great, great teacher, great morally. But he's calling us into a declaration of him, not just as Savior, but as Lord, which means he calls the shots. He sent, he, I'm sitting shotgun, but he's driving this thing. And I'm in obedience to him. Where he goes, I'm going to follow. That's what he told his disciples. It's a rough group of fishermen. He said, come, follow me. A simple invitation. Sometimes obedience brings us through a very difficult process. Sometimes obedience and being in those difficult places will cause us to doubt the goodness of God, to doubt the greatness of God. But don't lose sight of who he is in the garden. Don't hesitate to sacrifice and don't be hesitant to walk in obedience. And what I believe about obedience is I believe that we make the decision of obedience before we're ever persecuted. We, we make the decision of obedience before we're arrested, before we're betrayed. And I think some of us, maybe we've been kind of straddling the fence of obedience. We're obedient sometimes when it feels comfortable. And frankly, there's a lot of that going on in the American church. It's comfort. That church asks too much of me. God's out, he wants too much, and we just kind of draw a line, like, I'll go up here in obedience, but not past that. And there's a line for all of us. And God's, God's drawing us into his heart, not into some life of, even just a, a I don't want to say the word sacrifice, because, but Jesus said it, and he was repeating something of the Old Testament, that obedience is better than sacrifice. And so what he's calling us to is a life of obedience, no matter what it costs us. But I think many times we draw a line. and But I'd say today is probably the day for some of us in the room to make, go ahead and make the decision for obedience in this moment and not turn back. Just make the decision for obedience. I'm going to walk in it. Because if you wait till your flesh is telling you to do one thing and, and really the battle's on, it's kind of too late. Yeah. Like you're already moving and you haven't made up your mind. And if you haven't made up your mind, you sort of made up your mind. You know, and so, and, and the hard truth that Revelation really speaks to us is that God's going to spit the lukewarm out of his mouth. Like he's not okay with this kind of havesy thing of Christian on Facebook, but my heart is not submitted to him as Lord. And that's the real talk, right? That's the real talk for where I think some of us are in the room. And so I'm calling us to obedience today. I'm calling us to follow him genuinely with our whole heart, to, to not draw a line where we'll sacrifice, to not um, 
really make it about our comfort, but to make it about obedience to him and what God might do through us. The third and, and final um, common use for the people um, at that time uh, was to anoint the flesh. And what they'd actually do, this went, there was a common use and it was a sacred use. They, they believe it had just medicinal. Everybody's obsessed with oils these days, right? My wife's a good oil lady if you want to talk about oils. So they had multiple uses for this oil, and they would, one, they believed that it had, you know, healing properties to it. If, if not scientifically, then spiritually. Because in the New Testament, the four times we see it, the, the disciples went out to anoint people with oil and to heal the sick. And, and so that was part of what they did, is to anoint. And so it, it's, it's more symbolic of, the, of what Christ endured and was pressed, and the, it's also been symbolic of his Holy Spirit. But there was these three uses. One was for healing, that it would be used for healing purposes. The second was that it actually would bring strength to the muscles. That I, I, if I'd rub it on my arm, I believe that it kind of brings strength there. And the third is that in the Old Testament, they would anoint priests and kings with it. And as Jesus bowed down in the brokenness, in the willingness, he was, an, he was already anointed but there is something symbolic about this in the depth of his brokenness and sorrow that he, he rises up covered in oil, sort of. Anointed as king and as priest that is worthy for the redemption of our sins. And so it's to anoint the flesh, feeble people, broken people like me and you. And so I, want to, I actually want to do something unique today that will weird some of you out, but you'll survive. It'll be over soon. This isn't for everybody, but I know it's for some people in the room that maybe you've got some physical things going on and your body's wasting away and it's difficult for you right now. And I believe that there's healing in Jesus Christ. I believe, it's, I believe we, we have access to the healer and that we don't have to just say this, it is what it is. And it will always be. And it may always be in this life, but it will not. His plans are good for us. No more, no more brokenness, no more pain, no more sickness. We're going to walk in complete healing in the age to come. But I believe that that can be known today. Some of you in the room have experienced divine healing of God. I know I have. My mouth was covered in sores for days, like completely sore. I, I stepped to an altar. I couldn't talk. It was the week I met my wife of all weeks and was prayed for and, and found complete healing within half an hour after I walked away from there. My mouth was completely, and like sores don't go away that fast. They, and so there's other stories, but we'll, we'll do there. The second is if you're in the room and, and you just feel like, Pastor, I'm trying. I'm, I'm really genuinely trying, but I, I need some strength that's beyond what... I'm tapping into. I want to lean on the strength of God. I want to lean on the power of the Holy Spirit. I, I want to pray for you as well. Um, and thirdly, I, I think there's some people in this room that you feel a, a genuine calling to ministry. And I don't know what that looks like for you. And I'm not saying in what I do. It may be that. It may be something completely different. It may be as a church player. I don't know. But it may be as something else. You just feel God drawing you into a life of just complete surrender into where your life is about what he wants for it. Complete, just focus on ministry. 
And I want to I pray with you today. The tables are going to be open. There's going to be prayer partners up here. We've moved our tables over because I just want to invite you to come. And I'm not going to do anything crazy or weird to you other than I'm just going to take some oil and I'm just going to make the sign of the cross over your head just symbolically that the blood of Christ has made you whole and that his, that his spirit is good and he is great and everything's possible for him.